you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 18 and work our way uh, to verse 32 this morning. In October of uh, 2022, just almost a year ago now, the nation learned of um, a tragedy. Four college students were brutally murdered in their sleep in Moscow, Idaho. Uh, Since that time, a suspect has been arrested. The trial has not yet occurred. The house where these crimes occurred still is is there in the community, and the community wants to tear it down to just just expunge it from their view and their thoughts, and yet they're leaving it up in case it contains evidence that could be valuable in the trial. So it sits there as a monument to this crime. In 2016, um, Alaskans learned of the murder of 16-year-old David Grunwald in, in Palmer. Apparently, David um, stole a stash of pot from his buddies, smoked it all himself, and when they found out, um, they lured him to a camper where they beat him with a handgun, and then they took him out to the forest and executed him. Um, his friends... Uh, have all been um, tried and sentenced just recently. I think the last one, I think they all received about 99 years uh, prison. Back in February, a man by the name of Stephen Downs was found guilty of rape and murder of a UAF college student, a crime that occurred back in 1993. The case sat unsolved for over 20 years until they found new DNA evidence uh, to prosecute and convict him. And so why do I bring up these heavy stories and these very difficult things uh, to say this? When wickedness occurs and there is no justice and there is no punishment, we are left feeling rightfully angry, unsatisfied, and frustrated. However, when the guilty are brought to justice and rightly punished, we find some relief, not total, not complete, because the crime can never be undone, right? But at least the verdict can say that this was wrong and this was evil and serve as hopefully a deterrent for others down the line. All this to say, justice is important to us. And justice is essential to any high and true view of God. And an aspect of God's justice is known as his wrath. God's righteous anger that is meted out as a just punishment for sin. And what I'm trying to do this morning is to, is to make this point clear through the text. That while the wrath of God is an unpopular topic, something we might feel uncomfortable about, The wrath of God is actually necessary in order for God to be truly good. So we're going to look, uh, first of all, at two, last week we looked at two key verses, key to the entire book of Romans. I said the the next 16 chapters basically unpack these two verses. So verses 16 and 17 say, For I I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew... Then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, 
the righteous will live by faith. Last week, we saw that this righteousness um, that is being revealed here um, is not speaking of merely an attribute of God, though he certainly is righteous, but it's speaking of a righteousness that he gives, a given righteousness, something that we sinners can obtain from him by faith, the righteousness of Christ. That's what's being, being referenced here. And so today we look at a passage that shows us mankind's problem. In other words, what it is that the gospel is the solution for. And so in short, what we're going to see today is why the good news of the gospel is so very, very good. In other words, if you don't understand the wrath of God for sin, then the gospel will never feel like good news. Now, uh, you have different translations out here in front of, uh, in front of you this morning. Uh, many of you probably have the 2011 version of the NIV, which is what I preach out of. And that is what we call a dynamic equivalent, where it looks at the original language and identifies the unit of thought and then kind of renders that unit of thought into the English. The King James, the New American Standard, and the ESV are more literal translations. So they look at a word-for-word translation. Okay? It's good to have both. They help each other out. And in this case, if you've got the ESV or the King James or the NAS, you have the right translation this morning. So the NIV, unfortunately, has left out a word, and I think a key word, uh, in this rendering here in verse 18. It's the word gar. It's a, it's a connection word, a conjunction, linking this passage to the last one. In other words, it ought to read for. So many of you have King James, NAS, and ESV. It says that, right? For. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So the first point this morning is this. The gospel is good news because of God's wrath for sin. Because of his wrath for sin. The lie that we so often believe or accept or are willing to be told is that my sin's no big deal. I just lie a little bit. Just a little. It's just, you know, I stretch the truth. It's just creative embellishment. I'm not a liar. I just lie a bit. Or, I just fudge on my taxes some. I mean, I just don't report all my income, okay? I don't report all my income. Everybody does it. After all, the government's evil and taxes are unconstitutional, right? By the way, that's not true. And Paul will have something to say about that later on in verse thir- or chapter 13. Or, Those lustful thoughts or leering looks or digital indiscretions, just my secret indulgences, just a matter of private sin. No big deal, no real harm. Or my gossip about this girl, this woman, this person, it's practically a community service because people got to know about her. They got to be warned. They should know how she is. And so these are some of the ways that we tend to excuse our sins, defend ourselves, and actually suppress the truth. We justify ourselves. 
right? After all, my choice sin, well, it comes so easily to me. I mean, I don't know why you do what you do. That's crazy. But my sin, oh, it's just right there, easy for the taking, so not a big deal. I excuse it as a minor flaw of character. You know, in my choice sins, it's not like I'm twisting my mustache or wringing sinister hands to inflict harm. So I defend myself and I explain away the evil of my actions. No big deal, no real harm, except this. There's no such thing as private sin. All sin has a victim. And more importantly, all sin is ultimately an offense against a holy God whose world this is. We often put this wrong. We think, oh, the, we're, we're the main character in the story. We're the central being. And we get to decide if we want God as a part of our life or not. And the reality is he is the supreme being and this is his world and he's graciously invited us to be a part of his life. But we invert it. In Psalm 51, King David makes some interesting remarks in his prayer of confession uh, about his adultery and his murder. Um, And it's interesting how he lays this out here. He shows that his sin is ultimately against God and against God's righteousness, against God's holiness, and against God's good shalom, peace, wholeness, and goodness, the way things ought to be. That his sin is ultimately against God. Listen to how he says it, Psalm 51, 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How do you feel about that last line? I read that and I think, really? David? The sin was only against God? I think, you, you seem to have sinned against Bathsheba. You were creeping on her while she's bathing. You sinned against her sexually when you sent for her and brought her into your bed. You sinned against the nation, abusing your authority. You sinned against her husband Uriah by taking what was rightfully his and his alone. You sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, arranging his certain death by battle, putting him in the front lines in order to disguise your sins. You sinned against the army by using them and their, their duty and their obedience to cover your sins. So I want to go, David, how can you say against you and you only have I sinned? Because it seems to me like you've sinned against a lot of people, Dave. That's what it looks like. But the point is that ultimately, ultimately, all sin is against God. A breaking of God's laws or as Cornelius Plantinga Jr. calls it, a vandalism of shalom. It's his world. He sets the rules. And God only commands good things. And that which God forbids is for our good and for his glory. But we want to believe the lie. We move on to verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the goodness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. There's two words I want to look at here, um, godlessness and wickedness. And I wish this were my observation and something that I had developed. It's not. This is from Tim Keller. So Tim Keller strikes again. Uh, It's just amazing in his perceptions. But he 
he recognizes that godlessness and wickedness are ways, are look, uh, ways of looking at our vertical and horizontal relationships. Godlessness is living in disregard to God. Wickedness is living in disregard to my fellow man, to my neighbor. So godlessness and wickedness are actually a breaking of what Jesus calls the greatest, the, the first and second, uh, uh, most important commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Therefore, the wrath of God is a rightful response to sin, which is ultimately against him. But there's something else here too. The wrath of God is not just an end times reality. The, the passage here is in the present tense. The verbs are in the present tense. The wrath of God is being revealed presently. Do you see that? And so we might ask ourselves the question, well, how is God's wrath being presently revealed? It doesn't feel that way. Feels like evil is permitted to go on and persist and even flourish around us at times. Uh, I'll, give you an, I'll give you an example of this. Um, I took my daughter down to Biola University a few weeks back. We packed up all the things that we were going to let her keep into four bags, and then we emptied the rest of her room. Mama's going to get a sewing room, but that's another story. <laughs> Eleanor's got four bags. Two of them are action packers. We fly down. We get to Santa Ana. We go to the baggage carousel. Three of our bags are there. One of the action packers is not. So we go over to the baggage claim, and oh, there it is, sitting there with tape around it. I go to pick it up, and it weighs nothing. And I say, this is not right. Can we open this? We open it up. 80% of the contents are gone, including all of her textbooks, including many of her clothes, her entire jewelry collection, including an heirloom ring and a pearl necklace that we gave her for graduation, silk scarves that I would bring home from different international trips that I would go on from Paris and Ethiopia and other places. It's gone. And to this, this point in time, Alaskan Airlines denies responsibility. They're offering no reimbursement. I'm up to like three letters. Even went down, they even said you have to file a police report. So I went down to the airport police this week and filed a police report. And they looked at the, did, they did what they do. Anyways, uh, the last, this, here's the last thing from Alaska Airlines. Well, we're going to offer you a $100 voucher for your next trip. Doesn't feel like the wrath of God for wickedness is being meted out. Where's the justice here? By the way, I'm not done. They have uh, got me riled, so um, we're, we're into it here. It feels like evil is allowed to persist and flourish all the time. The answer to this question, how is God's wrath being presently revealed, is this. He gives people over to their rebellion. In other words, he lets them have what they want and the natural consequences that come from it. This is one of the ways that his, his wrath is being presently revealed. We'll get to that more later as that develops. But we turn now to a concept here that sin and wickedness can't be excused simply by a claim of ignorance. That's the next thing we run into. Verse 19. So what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So this is our second point. The claim of ignorance, no excuse. Some will say it's not fair of God 
to hold sin against people who've never heard of him, uh, people who have never had his word, have never had a vision from God, who have never read his specific commandments. How can God justly hold people accountable for something that they don't know? And Paul challenges this and basically says, I mean, he kind of denies the premise and says, they do know. They do know. And, and in fact, he says here, essentially, wickedness is not justified or given a pass just for the claim of lack of knowledge. Interestingly enough, even our legal system says that. I've served on the grand jury a number of times, more than my fair share, I think, actually. And, you know, if you sit there and they present the case and they give you the evidence, and they, this is the statute and this is the requirement to, to see that it's a true bill and needs to go up and be adjudicated. And one of the things they say at the end of each one of these presentations, after you've listened to uh, sort of the presentation, is this, um, that the ignorance of the law is not a defense. Even our human justice system says it doesn't matter if you knew the law or not. If you broke it, you still broke the law. You're still guilty. But Paul goes a step further to say, not only that, but you knew, or you should have known. You were given enough revelation to know better because the creation bears witness to a creator. What we can observe in the world around us from its intricacy, its goodness, and its intelligent design is sufficient knowledge for mankind to begin a pursuit of God, a creator, and to see his goodness and his ways. I like what the old church father Origen had to say about the two books, the book of scripture and the book of nature, each which testify to God. So the point is there's enough natural revelation to begin the search for God and in seeking to find him. We even have an internal sense of right and wrong. We have a morality that is not merely a construct of of social environments. Where does that come from if not a God? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, makes a whole rational argument for the existence of God based upon morality. So the point is this. God has allowed human beings knowledge enough to hold them responsible for worshiping him or not and treating others justly or not. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in, their, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So this is our third point here. In denying the creator, we are left to worship the creation. Or I'll say it this way. Worship is inevitable. It's unavoidable. Everybody worships. You cannot not worship. The image I would put in your mind is like a flashlight that has no off switch. It's just on all the time. And the only thing that matters is sort of where you're aiming this beam. Where is this light pointed to? So we too, we are beings that are created for the purpose of worship, 
That's what we're engineered to do. If you were to take a human being and reverse engineer them and say, based on what we see about this creature, what is it meant to do? You would have to observe this thing was engineered and made to worship. That's what it does. And this is even even something that is noticed by um, non-Christians, thoughtful non-Christians. One fellow in particular by the name of David Foster Wallace. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. Uh, He was a very accomplished novelist, wrote one of the top 100 novels in the 20th century. Uh, He's not a Christian. He had a life of suffering with depression and ended up taking his own life in 2008. But before doing that, he spoke at a commencement speech to Kenyon College in 2005, and he, a non-believer, said this, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. That's a non-Christian saying that. And he is exactly right. It squares exactly with what Paul is saying here. We're meant to be worshipers. We will either worship the king of kings or we will worship lesser things. And those lesser, lesser things will fail us consistently. They will be insufficient, unworthy objects of our worship. So the question I want to ask you, Christian, is to whom or to what is the beam of your worship directed? Is God most high receiving the worship from you that he is due? If we deny the creator or withhold our worship from him, we will worship the creation. If we deny the worship of God, we will inevitably end up worshiping ourself or lesser objects around us. And so one of the ways the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven is that and one of the ways that we presently experience his wrath is that he allows us to have our way. This is our next point. Part of the present wrath is letting us have our rebellious way. Notice the repetition of phrases here in verses 24, 26, and 28. In verse 24, it was, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Uh, And we go on from there. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed for lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God, here it is again, gave them over, third time, gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. C.S. Lewis has um, crisply captured this concept here when he says, sin is the human being saying to God throughout life, go away and leave me alone. And hell is God's answer. You may have your wish. Now, hell is the final stage of God's wrath for sin, but our passage begins with the phrase in the active tense, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. 
In other words, it seems that he will allow rebels to experience hell on earth and giving them over to their desires and to their sinful wants. Um, I'll give you a picture of this. And I don't mean to be unkind, but uh, Portland, Oregon right now is a picture of hell on earth and people getting what their rebellious wants give them. I've been, I, we used to live in Yakima, Washington about 25 years ago, and we used to jokingly refer to Oregon as the territory, right? Sort of our pejorative dig on Oregon. And then God moved us to Fairbanks, Alaska, so joke's on us there. Um, but I've, we, we would go to Portland frequently, and it was, a, it was a cool city. It was beautiful. It was creative, a river right through it, lots of fun things to do, cool restaurants. We enjoyed it. And over the years, I've consistently gone there for my seminary training, and and uh, I'm almost done with that, with my doctorate here. I've got to go one more time. Uh, well, two, to defend and then graduate. Sorry, getting sidetracked here. But I have watched over the last 25 years the steady deterioration of Portland, Oregon. And it comes with wanting things that are against God's will, that are absolutely sinful, grabbing them, getting them, and receiving the just punishment that is in them. If you go to Portland, Oregon right now and you walk down the the streets of downtown, the sidewalks are primarily used for homeless camps. You have to walk around them. And people are homeless a lot of times because of their addiction to drugs. They have stopped enforcing drug sales and drug use in the downtown area. So it's just prolific. It's just everywhere. Not only that, but there's, they've defunded police, and the police do not uh, prosecute crime under $1,000. So if you walk into a store and you take less than $1,000 worth of goods, there's no one to stop you. So the losses in the stores are gone up, and the businesses are leaving. And Portland is just a picture of corruption and eter- internal rot just eating itself. The sinfulness of sin. The consequence of sin. This is one of the ways the wrath of God is being revealed. He lets us have what we want. Brett McCracken, one of our speakers for CTF last year, was asked um, a question by one of you about cancel culture. Like, how long can this go on? And he had a great response. He basically said, it's not going to go on too long. It can't. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. It will fall in upon itself. And I think that is a great picture of sin. One of the great dangers of sin is that there is no protection from its own destructiveness. It caves in on itself. It is why God has cautioned us against it, because it is inherently um, flawed. Sin is not sustainable. The nature of sin is corrosive. The return of sin is flawed, and the promise of sin is a lie. It's fool's gold. That's what it is. Or it's like when you, you were a kid. I don't know if you guys did this. I did this. I hate living here. I'm running away. I announce it to my mom. And she says, good. We'll miss you. Do you want a pack of lunch? That's great. Uh, I've been wanting a sewing room myself. You know. And I'm like, oh, she's willing to let me have my way. I don't think I really want that after all. You know, she called my bluff. Did your guys' mom do that? Was mine the only one? It was a rough upbringing, you know. One of the most haunting things I've ever heard or read about sin is by Ravi Zacharias. Sin will take you further than you want to go. 
keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. And I will continue to use that quote from Ravi, particularly because he knew it firsthand. He described it so aptly because sin was wrapped around him. Part of God's wrath or hell on earth is experience that God gives to rebels. He gives them their own sinful desires and their just desserts. Now there's a progression here, I think. The first, one, first way we see this is that God gives rebels over to sinful desires. Um, verse 24. Uh, sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is ever, forever praised. Amen. And so this first category that we see here is this realm of what I'll call general sexual immorality. And Dallas Willard, I think, has an excellent uh, description of this, of what happens here in his book, Renovation of the Heart. This is a distillation of the quote. He says this, Sensuality through the body becomes the primary area of pleasure for the person who does not live honestly and interactively with God. Those who reject God try to wring every pleasure out of the body. We have to feel something, and it needs to be deep and sustained. But if we are not living the great drama of goodness in God's kingdom, sensuality through the body is all that is left under our kingdom. This is the natural progression in the flight from God. Believe it or not, God is pro-sex. It's a good thing. It's his creation. He designed it. It's one of his many good gifts. And with all good gifts, it has a proper context. God has restricted sex to the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. That is the beautiful view and the beautiful gift of what God has given. Unfortunately, again, the world wants to say, or even Christians, well, that's prudish, that's so narrow, how can that be good? Surely we know better. But consider the cost of promiscuity outside of marriage and the consequences it carries with it. STDs, sexual addictions, unplanned pregnancies, the commodifying of sex, prostitution and sex workers, abortions, Sexual abuse, sexual deviance, including violence, guilt, shame, and mistrust within relationships. Sexual intimacy is one of the most powerful things God has created for construction or for destruction, depending on how we use it. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here Paul gives, I believe we move into another a deeper category here. And Paul gives this description of this particular sexual immorality and calls it shameful. And I need to say two, two things about this here. First of all, the description here is to homosexual practice. So two, two hard things to say. The first is this, and this might be controversial for some of you, but I stand by it. Same-sex attraction in and of itself is not a sin. In the same way that a married person might be attracted to someone who is not their spouse, 
is not a sin if it's not acted upon. In the same way, attraction itself, same-sex attraction, is not a sin. I'll take you to the example of David. He's up on the rooftop walking around. He sees a beautiful woman. There's a point at time in which he can turn, around, turn away and not have sinned. He can see beauty, he can notice beauty, and say, that's not beauty for me, that belongs to another, and turn away. But he lingered, and he indulged, and he took it into his life. And therein is the sin. I will say that we are blessed with a number of really wonderful, courageous men and women who have experienced same-sex attraction, but who have rejected homosexual practice understanding that that is not what God has for us and that that is a sin. And I want to give you a list of these names in case this is something either for yourself or for a friend that you'd like to research. Sam Albury, Rosaria Butterfield, Sam Yuan, Wesley Hill, Jackie Hill Perry, David Bennett, and Rebecca McLaughlin. Each of them are courageous. These are faithful Christians who have felt same-sex attraction but recognize it is not consistent with the faithful reading of God's word and God's good design for us. They have brought their personal desires into conformity to the teachings of Christ and of God's word. And I think one of the overall encouragements from these folks is that they will, they will, they will say clearly that sexual desires and appetites do not create an identity. Not an identity. Just because you feel that attraction does not mean it defines you or that you must exercise it, again, any more than a married person feels attracted to someone who is not their spouse. We're not animals. We do not have to practice our desires. We can bring them into conformity to the teachings of Christ. The second thing I want to say about this, and this may be more controversial, but um, it's what I think, Um, and I will tell you that I think I have a minority opinion on this uh, within Christendom, but... I believe that some sins are worse than other sins. Um, And by that, I don't just mean that I think some consequences are are worse than others. That's a no-brainer, right? We all believe that. But I mean that some sins are a greater distortion of God's design. Some sins are lifetime sins. Some sins cause others to sin. Some sins are committed in a high-handed way. I know better, but... I want to do it. I, I would liken this to crime. We have first, second, and third degree murder, right? There are degrees of intention and severity uh, that link up with murder. And I think in the same way, there, are, there, there is a, a strata of some sins that are greater in severity than others. For example, there are sins of, commit, of omission, a half-brother of Jesus in, in his book, James, says, he who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Sin of omission. Like, ah, I should have done that, I didn't. Then there are sins of commission. But maybe we commit them unintentionally. I, I, I lost my temper and I said something really unkind to you. I did sin against you. But I didn't start off wanting to do that. Some sins we commit willfully. I know better, I just want to do it. Finally, some sins we willfully live into perpetually. All sin is an offense against God. Any sin is too much sin. Any amount of sin makes me a sinner in need of a savior. But I believe some sins are greater sins because of intent, degree of distortion, 
and duration. And I believe homosexual practice to be one of those greater sins, as I understand God's word. That does not mean that homosexual practice is the ultimate sin or an unforgivable sin. Scripture is really clear on this, and this is important, that we can be forgiven from any and every sin. Amen? So great is the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. And that is the faithful testimony of of many that I mentioned here in this list. There's another point I want to make here, um, and that is there are many in the world who would look at what I've just said, and they would characterize it as hate speech. Hate speech. And this may come knocking one day for me, but... I want to respond to that if anybody's thinking that. Um, This is not hate speech for two reasons. Number one, this teaching is not merely my opinion. I'm not up here saying this is where I think this is. It is rather the timeless teaching of God and his word. And God's word clearly teaches that homosexual practice is a sin. Secondly, the, the second reason this is not hate speech is this. Because God's word says that God loves sinners. He loves them. God the Son died for sinners while they were still in the throes of their sin. God does not wait to love us until we get our lives cleaned up and turned to him. He loves us in the midst of our rebellion. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us. He loves to forgive. He is longing to forgive. So this is not hate speech, this is love speech. If what Romans says is true, and I believe it, then the most loving thing I can do is declare it to you, you who are tempted by any of these digressive sins. Or let me put it to you this way. If you go to your physician, and they do a biopsy on some growth in your body, they get the report back, and they look at it and go, this is not good. This is incredibly dangerous. But they... Consider it and go, actually, this is going to be really troubling for them. So they come back in and say, everything's good. And they issue no warning. The physician has not loved you or given you proper care. The loving thing to do is to warn. This is not hate speech. This is love speech. Moving on to our last bit here, verse 28. Therefore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And I'm not going to read the list because it's extensive. But So this is the third point. God gives rebels over to a depraved mind. And this is one of the things that is so dangerous about sin is that it masquerades as an innocent vice. Sin poses to us as actually freedom, but the insidious nature about sin is that it is in fact bondage. Some of you are here today and you're very, aware, very well aware of your own favorite and besetting sin. And you think it's just this innocent thing, just this little choice, and you think you've got it managed, but in reality, it's managing you. Um, I think one of the best pictures I've ever seen of this is Tolkien's character Gollum in Lord of the Ring, uh, Lord of the Rings, Right? Like him, you have your sin. You're precious. You keep it secret. You keep it safe. And in reality, it's keeping you. 
And I thought Peter Jackson did such, the director of the films did such a great job giving an incredible visual to this. I am personally, I'm just haunted by this picture of Gollum who has followed Sam and Frodo into the mountain of Mordor all the way to the end of the cliff where they're getting ready to go into the fires to destroy the ring. And he fights them to the end, biting off his finger to get the ring and has it falling off and holding the ring, smiling at it. He has his precious as he's falling to his utter destruction. That is a picture of sin. We think it's under control but it's mastering us. One final warning. I warn those of you who are young and you think, you know, I'm gonna get serious about God someday. I'll do it. I'm sure I will. God's good. I'll get there. But I'm young. I'm supposed to have fun right now. I'm supposed to act out a little. These are my rebellious years. I'm just playing around. But I'll turn it around someday. I will tell you, if what I've just taught through here is true and God gives us over, God gives us over to sinful desires, shameful lusts, and a depraved mind, then what makes you think you will want to turn your life around later? If not now, why later? You're playing with fire. The Puritan John Owen said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so I urge you, repent of your sin, turn in saving faith to Christ and pursue obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has commanded is truly, truly good. Let's pray. Father, this is a heavy message. It's weighty. We may not like to think about your wrath, but we see, Lord, that it is ultimately good. It is ultimately good so that sin would be justly punished. And if heaven is going to be any kind of good in the future, then it cannot be there. So your wrath must be meted out. But that shows us, Lord, how good and glorious is the gospel that the sinner can be saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He paid for our sin and his righteousness can be transferred, imputed to us so that God would look upon us, God the Father would see not sinners but saints, those who bear the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the goodness of your gospel. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.